This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy, Triple R's weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and we have got a packed studio this morning. Not only do we have our wonderful regulars, Miss Medic, our resident GP, Lolly Doc, our resident emergency department physician, Dr Malice, our resident child psychiatrist, but we are also joined by our very special guest, Dr Anthea Rhodes, here to talk about the Australian Child Health Poll, which I will tell you all about in just a second. First, though, just to give you a little heads up about what's coming up this hour, we're going to start the show with a small, uncontroversial segment from Lolly Doc, as always, on homelessness and human rights. He's volunteered to delve into all the ethical issues in under seven minutes, so I'm very much looking forward to that. Then we are going to go to our very special guest, Dr Anthea Rhodes. Uh, Anthea's been on the show before and we're very grateful to have her back today. She's the director of the Australian Child Health Poll and also a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital. And she's going to talk about the latest poll, which was all about vaccination. However, it's not just the standard questions I think that you might imagine it's not just it hasn't just been about asking parents whether they're pro or anti-vaccination it delves into the issues at a much deeper level things like whether parents believe that healthcare practitioners should provide care to unvaccinated children whether parents think they should have the right to know how many unvaccinated children are attending a given school and also what their views are on the no jab, no play policy. So it's fascinating stuff to find out about and to get a little glimpse into where Australian parents lie on the spectrum. And then finally, we're going to round out the show with a beautiful little segment from Dr Malice on mother-infant bonding. He read a lovely little reflective paper this week and we've actually just recently, about 20 minutes ago, put it up on our Facebook page if you fancy reading it. Uh, And it's a really lovely piece about how simple some of the stuff is around mother-infant bonding uh, despite the complexity of some of the things we read. It's a lovely reminder. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Good morning, everyone. Miss Medic, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. This is your first show for 2017, isn't it, Dr Autonomy? I only realised that a few minutes ago, actually, but yes. Slow I'm... start to the year, just yeah. warming up nice and slow. You're like the summer, just kicking in <laughs> a little bit late. <laughs> it's my style, last minute, but I just get in. <laughs> Lolly Doc, good morning. Good morning. I am... Um... Went and saw Teenage Fan Club on Monday night, which is a band from the early nineties. You look at me blankly, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm So I'm gonna well so exactly right. So I went to a pub to have a counter meal beforehand and a what? A, a counter <laughs> Sorry, meal. Still, yeah, still, still not getting it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I had a I had a chicken parma. <laughs> oh yeah, I know and, what that is. Yeah, yeah. And um some some young people asked me what I was doing and I said I was gonna see a band. They said Teenage Fan Club and I said, Oh, that's right, he's they're opening for Justin Bieber, aren't they? Oh, Oh, no, man. No, they weren't. Yeah. Wow. Stab in the heart, huh? Yeah. I've got a no jab, no play policy. <laughs> oh. Too soon. <laughs> 
Malice. Dr. Well, Malice, good everyone, morning to you. Everyone's left speechless by that. So I've got to follow up with a musical outing also that I confess to going to Adele with a friend tonight. And I I'm, went last night, Malice, no. alongside every other female, female yeah, no, yes. age between, I don't know... 30 to 65, maybe? Well, I'm outside both the age range and the gender. (laughs) But if you want to pick up, Malice, it's the place, I tell you. Well, maybe my partner should not accompany me. Yeah, sorry about that. That was a joke. joke. Obviously missed out on what is the issue here with gender with Adele. I mean, she's got the most superb voice. She does, yeah. Uh, I mean, just on another registry of human experience so I, I, it transcends gender so I was a bit shocked when we had the conversation outside coming in that there was an issue no, it's just important. that you're so open minded Malice and that you're just an example for us all yes but what's the issue <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing um, Annie DeFranco and and so she crossed sexuality lines. So there were there was a lot of it was a gig full of lesbian women and me at at this Such gig. A it was trailblazer. It, it was quite. It was really interesting. So I imagine Adele would have similar kind of as a male. There would be quite um, quite interesting. I think it's the content, isn't it? It's got to be. Yeah, content. it's all about brokenheartedness and lamenting lost loves. And men don't have that. Well, so what are you trying to say? <laughs> oh, I'm just saying it maybe speaks to. Women more than no, that's look, no. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm putting you in. Yeah. It. I'm you putting you in. It. I'm totally in putting you in it. Yeah. Well, in the interest of time, we better move <laughs> on. I think <laughs> uh, it seems a bit strange to go from that straight into quite a heavy topic, but I think it's a really important one actually. And to be honest, it's one I haven't been across in the media and the news. So, um, Lolly Doc, enlighten me. What's going on in terms of homelessness and makeshift camps in Melbourne's CBD? Where are we at? So this this was something that really caught my eye at the start of the year and I was aware that there was a lot of um, chatter uh, amongst uh, local governments about how to manage homelessness in uh, in, in their city councils. And uh, I guess um, it's a very controversial area and the there was a recent vote two weeks ago at the Melbourne City Council um, meeting. And what they've changed is one of the bylaws which defines camping. And that um, has impacts for for the homeless. And if people have been in the Melbourne CBD recently, particularly at night time, notice that um, there's more and more homeless people who are making, I guess, what what we've termed makeshift camps um, to in their uh, mind, um, protect themselves. So these are vulnerable, uh, disadvantaged people who are living rough at night and want to stay in the CBD because it's a well-lit, well-trafficked area with foot police and people around that um, gives them a degree of safety and there's safety numbers as well. Mm. So there's approximately... Um, 100,000 homeless people around Australia How at many? any night. 100,000. And a significant proportion are in Melbourne. And about 20% are between 18 and 25. Hmm. And um, more, or I think 40 to 50% are um, mums 
who are with or without their child um, generally trying to avoid a domestic violence situation. So, you know, a very vulnerable sort of group of people. Um, And what the bylaw has changed is, I guess it's uh, tightened, from the council's point of view, it's tightened the concept of camping, and that means leaving belongings uh, behind. For example, if you go and get a drink and you've left your sleeping bag or your cardboard box behind, that's considered a belonging and you can be asked to move on from there. Uh, And so the consequence of that, obviously, is that these homeless people will be pushed further and further to the outskirts or the fringes of our cities so that they're out of sight. And, And the issue for the council is that it's an eyesore and that the um, general citizen that's walking past feels, um, I guess, I don't know, threatened by, by seeing, by seeing that. Um, so from my, from my mind, it's an interesting topic for me because I think it highlights, um, the way society is at the moment. And it's, it's, for me, it's a, if you like, a barometer of societal care. And, uh, with, the, this passing of the Bible, and I must say that the council was five to four, so it wasn't like a unanimous decision. Mm. There was a lot of controversy, and there were a lot of people who spoke at the council meeting. And they, um, what what I think it highlights is really lack of affordable, safe housing, uh, our inability to manage domestic violence. It's a whole raft of issues, and this is, I guess, the tip of the iceberg. And it's a as frogs are to the environment. I think this is a very similar way of highlighting how poorly we're managing some of society's difficult issues. So it was an interesting topic. <sighs> Happy it, days, right? Yeah, I mean, it's heavy stuff, but it's it's so important to consider in depth, isn't it? And as you talk about that, I, for one, had no idea of the stats on the number of, of people sleeping rough and the, uh, the cohort, you know, in terms of age ranges and, and gender. But what I'm left thinking is surely there's something in between, you know, in between people sleeping rough in the CPD and people sleeping rough out in the suburbs. Like, where is the stuff in between in terms of, as you say, affordable housing, um, support networks, uh, assistance, you know, to help these people have a third option other than those two? It's It just highlights how lacking, as you say, we are in, in what we're providing, I think. And the other issue is... is that in making it illegal and these are, you know, camping, doing the wrong things, then we're creating issues where there are problems that are becoming criminal which shouldn't be criminal. So these should not be filling up sort of, you know, criminal court spaces and fines and things like that. I mean, this is only going to worsen the problem, throwing a legal you know, like dealing dealing with this in a legal way is not a solution. We need to be dealing with it in a social way. So it's just it seems to be completely the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Exactly it's just right. Going to exacerbate this problem. I think, and and uh, the, the, that's probably the stats are probably under reporting mm-hmm. what's going on because you're not capturing people, for example, who are couch surfing or people who are living in their car. Cars, yeah. um, if you know they're well enough to have a car, we're not. Uh, probably capturing people with mental illness who aren't able to self-report or to report to to others. So there's there's a whole raft of... Um, there's a problem there. 
and this is feels very much like sweep the problem under the carpet. Mm. So the law has already been changed, you said. So the bylaw's been changed. It's not a... There, there are fines um, that can be imposed. The council itself has stated, and this is me secondhand quoting what <laughs> I've read, but, but the council have stated that they will have um, compliance officers walking around with social workers and other workers to provide, you know, support and, and, and other avenues. But I guess you need to have those avenues available to mm. be able to use them. And I think we all know that community services, particularly for housing, are, are very, very um, stretched. It just sounds like, you know, wouldn't the money be better spent putting, you know, extra services in those area than areas rather than having people walking around finding people and moving them just seems absurd to me that sounds like common sense to me is there any scope for change or is this it's the law's been changed this is what's going to happen and it's a done deal i think i think it depends a little bit on how society view where the pressure points are i think if Mm -hmm. you're if you're a government whether it's local federal or state you respond to pressure points and i suspect that the subtext in all of this is that there's local residents and people, traders, for example, through the CBD who are putting pressure on the the council to, mm-hmm. to do something about it, and that's a rapid fix. So the the issue really is a longer-term solution and we need to put pressure points on government to, to find places for these people. Yeah, it's a good point. Pressure on. Yeah. Thanks for that. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr Anthea Rhodes before we start chatting to her. She's been on our show before. We're very lucky to have her back. I'm hoping that it's going to become a little bit of a tradition. Me too. So, Dr Anthea Rhodes is a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital and she's also director of the Australian Child Health Poll, which is specifically why we've got her on this morning. She's got a particular interest in the health needs of vulnerable children and she's got specialist training in immigrant health and child development and behaviour. And on top of all that, she also lectures at the University of Melbourne. That makes me sound so good. You are so good. (laughs) Who wrote that? (laughs) Thanks for joining us again, Anthea. Very welcome. Great to be here. So the Australian Child Health Poll happens about every three months. It does. This is the sixth one that yes. has just occurred and it's all about vaccination. Absolutely, yes. This time round, we asked, as we do, 2,000 Australian parents, representative sample from across the country, about their attitudes, experiences, opinions when it comes to vaccination. A pretty mm. polarising topic <laughs> at times and yeah. one that we see in the media often. So really interesting findings for us. Yeah, and as I said in the introduction, you know, when I first read that, I just assumed you would be asking parents whether they were sort of pro or anti-vaccination. But you asked much more interesting questions than that and really delved into their perspectives on a variety of issues. The first one that I'm going to bring up, uh, which is probably one of the most controversial, is this concept of whether healthcare providers should provide care to unvaccinated children. Can you tell me a bit about what you asked and what you found? Absolutely. So we, to give you some context and background, in the US it's been a topic of conversation for some years now, whether it might be reasonable at times for um, 
a healthcare provider, and generally there it's been paediatricians. They're their primary care providers um, rather than general practitioners in the US. Whether it might be reasonable for them to refuse care to an unvaccinated child and suggest they might see a different practitioner if they felt that therapeutic relationship was broken, if you like, because they weren't able to see eye to eye with that family. And for many years, the American Academy of Paediatrics had a very strong position that that was not ethical or okay. And then, in fact, about 12 months ago, they moved their position somewhat and they're a little bit more middle ground now and suggest that in some instances it might be reasonable as a last resort. So, and there's varying rates um, and studies around suggesting that up to one in eight um, primary care providers in the US are in fact following that pattern of practice and deciding whether their uh, practice will be anti-vax friendly or not, if you like. Wow. So among many questions on the poll, we were keen to learn whether there was any sense of this type of um, practice or attitude happening in Australia and I think probably really important to put it up front as well that um, not only personally but also in terms of of the uh, background at the poll and the Royal Children's Hospital that we have a pretty clear position that we don't support that mm. um, selective practice and that all children should and do have a right to equal access to health care. But we popped a question on the poll to parents because that's who we survey and we asked the parents of those children who were unvaccinated. So that was around 5% of our sample of three and a half kids, so just under 200 kids across Australia. And one in six of the parents told us that at some point they had been refused care for their child because their child was unvaccinated. Hmm. So um, by a healthcare provider, that may include any type of healthcare provider. We weren't more specific than that on the, the survey. And obviously, as we often see with research, we, you know, it creates a whole lot of questions, which are which healthcare provider, in what context... Did the parent really understand what that was about? Maybe it was reasonable. All great questions and things that we'd really like to see, you know, perhaps looked at and answered now. Mm. It's interesting. And, I mean, when I first read about that in the Child Health Poll, I, I can imagine people having a range of perspectives about that. And, in fact, when we put that up on our Facebook page this morning, you know, someone responded sort of saying, if that's the only thing that's going to make people vaccinate their children, then I'm all for it, you know. So I'm sure that there is a range of opinions about that in the community. But as you said, the Royal Children's Hospital has a very clear policy around that, that at the end of the day, the person that we're harming is the child because the child is the one who is not able to access treatment and and they're the vulnerable person in this scenario. And potentially also remembering that obviously children aren't making these decisions for themselves and, and you could suggest, in fact, that those children who are unvaccinated are already disadvantaged in that they're at a higher risk of getting a vaccine-preventable disease. Mm. So to compound that with um, complicating their access to health care uh, is really um, not a useful thing. Miss Medic. I guess the other concern is that in refusing someone healthcare, you completely disengage them from the health services available to them and potentially lose an opportunity 
to help someone and perhaps help someone understand the benefits of vaccines. So, you know, we're all about um, education. We're not about just telling people what to do, but educating. And as soon as you refuse someone care or give, I give, I guess it's about giving the perception that you're less interested in helping someone, then you, you potentially lose an opportunity to help that child yeah. and that family. It's so true. And that actually reminds me of another question that you asked about in the poll, which was about how much do people understand the risks of vaccination? Is there still myths that are uh, occurring in the community about how safe they are or are not? And also information about when it's okay to vaccinate your child and when it's not in terms of the child's health. So if we're talking about education and opportunities, I think from from what I've read, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Yeah, and I think that those findings are really important from this poll and, and will inform some opportunity to improve perhaps some of that education. And Miss Medic, the very sensible and clever GP, is absolutely right. We also learnt that those families who are engaged with um, a primary care provider who they trust are less likely to have worries about vaccination and more likely to vaccinate their kids. Mm. So maintaining that engagement as the space for supporting a parent around decisions that can be hard sometimes around vaccination is really important and powerful. But, yeah, to answer your question about the myths, so... Importantly, also up front, a lot of good news in this in that the vast majority of parents are vaccinating their kids and do fully support vaccination. But also really important for us was the fact that just under a third also hold some concerns about vaccination. And most of them relate to myths and misconceptions. So, for example, we found that one in ten parents were still of the opinion or understanding that vaccines do cause autism and a further third were unsure, despite (coughs) extensive research to demonstrate very clearly no causal link. This myth that arose some decades ago now persists. Um, Other things as well about worries whether vaccines might weaken a child's immune system, whether vaccines have toxins in them, again, still held by a reasonable number of parents. So a reminder that when educating parents around vaccination, it's not just about... I guess, reminding them of the terrible diseases and the reasons to avoid those because that was less of a concern to parents, but perhaps going, look, what are you really worried about here? Because I think a lot of the time parents maybe still don't realise that these things aren't true. Mm. Such important stuff to clarify, isn't it? You know, And that very simple piece of advice that you just gave of actually asking parents what they're worried about yeah. and you know what's playing on their mind and then having that opportunity to clarify rather than assuming we know what it's all about, which clearly the poll shows some of our assumptions are wrong. And I think what, what we're learning through the poll in each time around when we ask parents for their perspective is that it's not always what we assume as healthcare providers and unless we go and ask the question, we won't necessarily understand where where the concerns lie mm. and you know we find parents are most worried about the things that are right in front of them so they're less worried about polio measles you know whooping cough even though we know as healthcare providers some of these things could still be around if we if we don't vaccinate and in some cases are like tetanus just recently a case in New South Wales but for most parents that's not a a tangible worry it's not in front of them it's not what's stressing them out but then if they see things like concerns about development and behavior and autism or a child's immune system being weakened then that could affect them you know now and here and so that's where their worries are. Mm, Lolly dot. 
I'd be fascinated to see this poll replicated in the third world or in Ooh. developing countries yeah. and and see how that correlates or compares to what we see here in Australia, I'm sure it would be completely different. You're absolutely right because it, again our worries are directly influenced by our experiences and I think what, what's really important from this work is that we're asking parents about their experiences and that helps us to understand their perspective more and hopefully maybe to engage them better and deliver healthcare in a way that they actually take it up and it's useful. Dr. Malice. Fascinating. Just a question from the American experience. Where is the boundary between healthcare providers providing the engagement and information and where is it public health policy? Mm. That is where there's, in, in models in America, the alcohol education system, tobacco education system, uh, others in vaccination indeed there as well. Yes, yes. Now, at where, where is the crossover? What A busy family practitioner or paediatrician is busy enough mm. to date, take on a whole community education project is is a phenomenal uh, undertaking. Ask, yeah. Yes. So whose job is it? Yeah. Now, yeah. Where, where is government on this? Yeah. So look, I think as with anything, it has to be a, a multi-prong and multi-level approach. And um, I can't speak to the US, you know, public health policy or position beyond knowing that obviously it exists and they do deliver some public health education around immunisation as we do here in Australia and quite recently we've seen quite a big campaign here in Victoria around you know immunity in the community there's been um, some high profile advertising prime tv and the like so definitely that's happening too and government is trying but I guess at the end of the day that you can't replace that direct conversation with someone you trust and that's where, you know, our, our general practitioners are just so important, so powerful and stretched, of course. <laughs> yes. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking to Dr Anthea Rhodes, who's the Director of the Australian Child Health Poll, about the latest poll, which was all about vaccination. Anthea, there was another part of the poll that I was particularly interested in, and this was a question around access to information on how many unvaccinated children are at any particular given school. So you can imagine some parents would want to know that information. I don't know what the, uh, what the status quo is. Uh, what did you find out about parents' views on that? Yeah, so I guess in short we found that most parents were in support of quite strong policies around or potential policies around information sharing um, when it comes to vaccination. So to to talk further to the school issue particularly, so we found 74%, so around three quarters, of Aussie parents said that they um, felt that they should be able to find out the percentage of unvaccinated children in any given school kindergarten childcare facility. And a further 69% said it would influence their decision about whether or not they sent their mm. own particular child to that service. So lots of complexities there, <clears> you know, <throat> in terms of ethically, information sharing, is it, is it right, is it appropriate, really big questions. What we learnt from the poll, because what the poll tells us is that the parents, a lot of parents, feel like that's something they would like to see happen. Mm. I mean, I can't help but wonder what happens then if 
parents choose Ooh. to not enrol their children at a school with high rates of unvaccinated children you know what happens to that school and what happens Absolutely. to the surrounding schools to that community yeah. as well I, I completely agree so you know these things are pretty complex mm. um and that's why we have lots of factors that go into those types of decisions mm. but interesting it was interesting for us to learn just how many parents kind of feel quite strongly about that type of thing Dr. Malice. Just looking at the longer term uh, life cycle of a child, an infant who's not immunised. Yes. Excluded from school, not engaged with GP. Absolutely. When they turn 18, could they turn around and sue their parents <laughs> for negligence and uh, really um, not caring according to basic knowledge at that time? And I'm again going by the American view <laughs> that sometimes regulation can only be changed when legal stick is imposed. And there are in infant uh, mental health issues where children have grown up and said that they didn't receive the right emotional mm. care. We're just throwing you the easy questions, Anthea. That's right. <laughs> and you know what? I think we have to remember too at the end of the day is, and in that sort of difficult situation is that the vast majority of parents, um, and, and I'm sure certainly that I see and, and I'm sure other healthcare providers as well, are always believing they're acting in the best interests of their Absolutely. children. So those those parents who really grapple with vaccination, and there are a handful, you know, there's a small percentage in the population out there, they are doing that because they, they're just so overwhelmed by the con their personal concerns for what that might do to their child, and that's what drives their position. And so, that you know, that's driven from a good place, mm -hmm. if you like, but at the end of the day when the science is clear... You know, how do we weigh up those two things together? Well, I think that's the point, that no one's doubting every parent believes they're acting in their child's very best interest. So this isn't Absolutely. in any way a criticism or an attack. No. However, when there's a societal change in what is in the best interest, then clearly, unless they come on board, then they are putting that child, their child, at such a disadvantage. Who's advocating for that child? Yeah, very mm -hmm. important. And that's where we want to see things like healthcare, you know, yeah. has to continue to be there. And that, I guess, touches on the really complex issue of no child, no no jab, no play. Yes. Mm, which you also asked about. We did. So, again, we found around 70% of Australian parents were in support of a no jab, no play policy. So that means, you know, 30% weren't as well. So it's not universally accepted by any means. But, yeah, this is, again, super complex because the the potential to you know feed into disadvantage for a child who's again not making a decision for themselves around their vaccination and then to compromise their access to early childcare and um, education is very very ethically challenging you know these these are not questions that can be easily answered it's funny i mean the research just seems to spark all of these uh, next level questions doesn't it and, and a sort of a next level of information that we need to find out and explore and, and discuss as a community <sighs> tough question again but i guess in terms of coming to an end with the segment despite all of the questions that have been raised does it leave you with any are there any take-home messages you want to leave people with or, you know, where does it leave you sitting about vaccinations after the latest poll? I think we were really... Um, there were some definitely some good news messages out of this poll in terms of uptake. So, you know, we have to remember at the end of the day that the small group that, that 
um, attract a lot of attention around vaccination that relate to unvaccinated children. And among that group, the even smaller group that are in a situation where their parents are very passionately anti-vaccination and that child's not vaccinated at all, um, make up a real minority here in the community. And so, and uh, what we learned from our poll was that, you know, most parents aren't of that position and very much um, have a reasonable understanding of the importance of vaccination mm. and, and vaccinate their kids. But what's unique about vaccination and, and continues to make it so, um, I guess, uh, inflammatory at times is that the decisions and actions of those very few in a reasonably unique way can impact everyone else mm. because of the concept of herd and community immunity and so that's why you know everyone has a strong position and it's mm. a really complex area to navigate because so many voices around the table well thank you for helping us to navigate it today it's been a great pleasure to have you back and i suspect we'll have you back again after the next child health poll which is top secret still we can't top talk secrets. about what it's You'll about have to have me back and tune I'll in in three then. months and we'll find out thank you anthea my pleasure three we are going to move now to a segment from Dr Malice, our resident child psychiatrist, and the segment is all about mother-infant bonding, sparked by a beautiful little paper that Malice came across this past week, which we've put up on our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on 3 R. if you're interested in having a read too. Dr Malice. Well, what an extraordinary segment to follow up on. And it's sheer coincidence that this paper that came across my um, computer from a, a friend and colleague in the States is actually part of a series from the Annals of Family Medicine all about preventative medicine. <laughs> and go. their 2017 update by the National Com uh, Commission on Prevention Priorities and re they released a, a set of new rankings in 2016 and this is a 2017 paper so it's at the cutting edge and I just now looked what is at the top of their list in the uh, commission screening immunising children, counselling to prevent tobacco initiation among youth and tobacco use screening and brief intervention to encourage cessation amongst adults. Mm -hmm. So that's the top of their list. Yeah. And uh, it's just absolutely fortuitous that this paper, which is about mother-infant bonding, is in fact at now in a screening uh, series of papers of prevention of later disorders and the ones that we'll mention briefly are ADHD and autism spectrum disorders. And you may wonder, well, my goodness, how does that fit into screening? But let's take a step back because one of the questions is how do we as presenters pick a topic during the week? You know, our illustrious producer, Dr Autonomy, says, right, gang, uh, we're on this Sunday. Uh, what have you got? And you think, oh, it's Monday. Maybe I'll wait till Tuesday, uh, then th Wednesday. Thursday's coming around. And what do we do? So we keep our eyes and ears open, which will be a resonant theme here about eyes and ears and voice and sound uh, and sight. And what happens? A paper like this comes across from uh, a colleague, which is titled Neuroscience, Joy and the Well-Infant Visit that got me thinking by Dr. Unger in the Annals of Family uh, Medicine. At the same time, it comes at a certain age after 60 that as practitioners we have problems with our medical record storage. <laughs> 
And so with our... Do you have to be over 60 to have that problem? Well, actually, I, I talked to a colleague who's well under 60 and he said that he's got the same problem. So I suddenly <laughs> felt it's not an ageism thing. No. But for child psychiatrists, it's a particular problem because we have mandated to keep our records till the child becomes 25 years of age. So normally the regulation is seven years for, mm. from the last mm. adult contact. And so now I've got permission for all those articles from my... Uh, articles, my my patients' notes from the 1980s, because they're well, even if they were born then, they're well over 25, to actually start shredding and keeping, obviously, the record that we met, but we don't have to keep the thick files. And guess what I find in one of these files? It is my baby observation training case report from the mid-1980s. <laughs> And I read through what was relevant in observing babies in the 1980s. And it is another world. And I'm thinking it was, if it wasn't my paper, I'd say, gosh, this is a bit odd. <laughs> <laughs> and it is my paper and it is a bit odd. <laughs> and then I've got this other paper, Neuroscience Joined the Well-Infant Visit that got me thinking. And it got me thinking that this is the piece that I should present to <laughs> Dr. Autonomy in the panel and see if I get a green light. And I got the green light, so here it is. But I thought it's interesting sometimes that a little bit of a background that we don't just sort of uh, wake up Sunday... Well, sometimes we do. <laughs> wake up Sunday morning and say, oh, my golly, it's Sunday morning, this is triple R, I better look at something at a journal, <laughs> Reader's Digest or some reputable place. But sometimes we do prepare and sometimes we've got a 30-year background on the topic. Now, back in the 1980s, the dominant theme of mother-infant bonding was actually undergoing a change with a guy called John Bowlby. Mm -hmm. And he had written some influential papers and then a series of books on attachment. And this, of course, changed everything, including the architecture of the Royal Children's Hospital. You may think, oh, now, has... Malice lost his marbles on a Sunday morning. What's architecture got to do with it? What it's got to do with it that he emphasised that maternal infant care and bonding and attachment is so critically important for the welfare and the recovery of children who are in hospital that the Royal Children's Hospital designed parent uh, sleeping places because of this research. And so here we have where mother-infant research translates not only into clinical practice, which we'll come to in a moment, but actually the architecture and the design, the concept of what it is like for a child and infant to be in a hospital, for parents to come in and then be exhausted and stay for the 40 minutes at best and then go through heavy traffic, versus coming in staying overnight, sleeping, waking up, nursing their babies, maybe even feeding their babies, pressure off the nursing staff and the medical staff, and the baby recovers so much quicker. Now, why? <laughs> what, what is it about mum that can do this? And this is where it becomes really fascinating because at that stage, this was heresy. I mean, you know, a patient was a patient and doctors and nurses and the staff in the hospital are in charge. What is this that a mother, a parent, comes in and intrudes? I mean, the logic of intrusion and, you know, uh, there was a well-known uh, joke at the time that if it wasn't for patients, hospital would be the greatest places to work in. And, yeah, they really muck up the system because they are demanding, they're unwell, and, you know, all these wonderful theories we could be doing, lab tests and X-rays and now F MRIs and whatnot, they get interfered with because of these nuisance situations of sick people. 
But by golly, that's what hospitals are there for. And so now it's our turn to update ourselves. This is the, the health provider staff. And so we've had a wonderful insight into the complexity of taking care of the body. Now we're going to turn into taking care of the baby's mind. And there's a, a, an amazing woman called Baroness Susan Greenfield from the UK who's a, a neuroscientist and an advocate for uh, progressing and propagating the latest neuroscience in child development. And she said that we should think in terms of mind care like climate care and climate change like mind change. Now, just imagine for a moment, every time you hear on the news, there's a climate change topic and there are the advocates pro and for and against. It's heated and like we heard just before, it's a passionate debate in climate change. Now, changing minds, we're talking here about the profession, is no less passionate. There are the old school who says, well, you know, going even back to Victorian times, babies are there to be seen but not heard and, you know, they'll just water them and pat them and clean them and they'll get on all right, more or less. Now, that is so outdated as to be not only unethical but probably malpractice if that was going to be practised in uh, healthcare systems and at homes. So what's news? Neuroscience, everyone I know is going to switch off now. So let's go with the topic of joy. And this is the, why it's such a delightful paper that Dr Unger, who's a primary care physician in the US, writes about this mum who comes in with a, a, a baby at the age of six weeks concerned that maybe the child is blind. Wow, that's a really serious issue. So testing all the basic things, Dr Unger then switches into the latest of his knowledge of neuroscience and sees what could happen if he goes close to the baby's face and raises his eyebrows and makes a sort of mothery comment like, ooh, and the baby switched on with a joyous response. A to and fro started happening. So this was a clue for Dr. Unger that this baby is not actually blind, but knowing the focal length of a, a child's eye is about 8 to 10 centimetres, if you go, or inches, if inches. inches, sorry, if, and in America it is in inches. They it's similar up. to the mother holding a newborn, say, at the breast, that distance between the that baby's the face exact, and the mother's face. Now, mothers didn't have yeah. to study neuroscience to do that. That is how they're designed. Yeah. Mm. And it is intuitive and instinctive unless the mother is stressed. Then she'll either clutch closely or, if she's disengaged, she will distance. And that was the issue with this baby and the mother. They didn't have this 8 to 10 inch range, and so the baby actually felt the mother ring was out of focus. So a simple demonstration in six-week-old in, in the clinic, in the, in the primary practice room, the baby perks up, shows joy, the mother's instantly relieved, she's got a surge of dopamine, the baby's got a surge of dopamine, Dr Unger sighs a sigh of relief, and all three are really happy. This is the joy part of neuroscience. Now, what he goes on to say, this is actually the gaze response, which is the hidden regulator. 
Isn't it a beautiful word? Hidden regulator. There was no fancy technology, although it was backed by technology, but it was backed by 3,000 years of motherese. Mm. That is how mothers know to nurse at that distance. Okay, not in this paper, but we know from other neurosciences, that's only one channel. That is the gaze channel. Let's go on to the voice channel and the Talk To Me Baby website, which we'll put on as well. It's not about the jazz number Talk To Me Baby, but that's a whole (laughs) other registry. Although there are amazing similarities of how lovers talk to each other and a mother who falls in love with her baby talks to the baby. Now, clearly, because the baby's left brain isn't yet developed, corpus callosum isn't got the connections, it has to be a right brain conversation. And it goes something like this. Ooh, ooh, aren't you cute? I could eat you. No, I'm not a cannibal. I could eat you. And the baby goes, whoa, yes, eat me, please. Now, that doesn't make sense to an adult. To a mother whose primary preoccupation is falling in love with her baby, it makes perfect sense. That is called motherese. Now, unless we learn to talk motherese and think, oh, when will the baby grow up and talk to me like an adult? (laughs) I mean, my goodness, you have actually blocked all those pathways between the right and left brain with the hippocampal and uh, amygdala circuits and all the rest of it. We don't have to go into the technical details. But you've actually put that infant at risk for integrating their brain and therefore their sense of self and self-regulation later in life is compromised. This is where Dr Unger then makes what would have sounded a bit of a fanciful leap, like just teaching a mother a baby facial face-to-face interaction distance and the language of motherese how could that possibly prevent possible adhd which is attention deficit let's remember what the the words are not the reified disease which isn't a disease uh it's attention deficit now a gaze actually engages attention if that attention is not engaged the baby gets called being attention deficit. It's not a baby, it's an interaction. A a baby's attention is focused on something, and guess what? It's probably focused on the caregiver. Mm. That is not rocket science. Now, if the caregiver doesn't engage that attention, it's not really the baby's fault to have attention deficit. So we come back to the final bit, which is the voice. And when we have motherese, of course, it's not the syntax and the language. It's what is called the musicality. The word there is prosody. And last year we had a huge conference at the Australian Childhood Foundation with 2,500 delegates and a dozen experts, and it was all about prosody. It's the musicality that the baby tunes into. And when you talk to me, baby, as a motherese, it's not a long sentence, it's woo, it's the musicality. And if you really want to go gold medal, you do a few raised eyebrows, a few funny faces, you bring in a surprise hand as well, and they're the surprise moments for the baby which light up areas that they didn't even know about and neuroscience does. So that's a long-winded way of saying to bring joy to yourself, your baby and their future This is a Sunday morning. Try it out now. If it doesn't work, read the paper, then something's not working well. (laughs) 
Thank you so much, Dr. Malice. Um, you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we've been talking about mother-infant bonding. And what I love about what you've just said is the simplicity of it. You know, children are resilient, babies are resilient. It takes a lot for a baby's development to really go awry. But I find it so comforting to know that as a mother, you know, as a parent, as a caregiver some of the things that are going to spark joy in our our children and spark brain development are so simple they're about that shared gaze at a close range they're about that musicality of voice and they're about that shared joy with the the motherese and the sort of the fun that's associated with that way of speaking and interacting and i think in the complexity that arises to bring that back down to such a, a simple um, range of activities that you can engage in with your baby that make the world of difference is such a lovely thing to remember. Anthea? I think so many things about this that are fantastic and I think that what's really interesting as well about motherese is how it just transcends culture. So there's a there's a version of this sort of singing, gooing, garring, eyebrow raising in every language culture around the world, whether they're sort of still very isolated from technology or, you know, in the depths of Tokyo, it, it transcends culture, which is amazing. But I think also a, another thing that we, we do have to remember is all these things are simple and beautiful, but occasionally we do find that mum who's you know, got postnatal depression or disengaged and, and even those really simple acts of looking at her baby and, and sharing that moment of joy are just so challenging that they can't be met and that's when the support of, you know, people around recognising that and Dr Unger or, or the like in that clinic room seeing, you know, what are the barriers for this mum in this interaction and supporting her so that she can do that. Thank you, everyone. Uh, that is a wrap for us. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to Dr. Malice, Lolly Doc, Miss Medic, and Dr. Anthea Rhodes for joining us. We'll be back again next week at 10 a.m. Stay tuned now for The Scientists with Einstein and GoGo. I feel that if people are not too embarrassed to take off their clothes to wash the genitals with soap and water, literally with people they don't know and will never see again. Ooh, whole business still turns me off. It all sounds a little sick to me. Be a little tolerant. Triple R. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.